Section 53 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 18. They were awakened by Possum, who was indignantly reproaching a tree squirrel for not coming down to be killed. The squirrel chattered garrulous remarks that drove Possum into a mad attempt to climb the tree. Billy and Saxon giggled and hugged each other at the terrier's frenzy. "'If this is going to be our place, there'll be no shooting of tree squirrels,' Billy said. Saxon pressed his hand and sat up. From beneath the bench came the cry of a meadowlark. "'There isn't anything left to be desired,' she sighed happily. "'Except the deed,' Billy corrected. After a hasty breakfast, they started to explore, running the irregular boundaries of the place and repeatedly crossing it from rail fence to creek and back again. Seven springs they found along the foot of the bench on the edge of the meadow. "'There's your water supply,' Billy said. "'Drain the meadows, work the soil up, and with fertilizer and all the water you can grow crops year-round. There must be five acres of it. I wouldn't trade it for Mrs. Mortimer's.' They were standing in the old orchard on the bench where they had counted twenty-seven trees, neglected, but of generous girth. And on top of the bench, back of the house, we can grow berries, Saxon paused, considering a new thought. If only Mrs. Mortimer would come up and advise us. Do you think she would, Billy? She sure would. It ain't more than four hours' run from San Jose. But first we'll get our hooks into the place, then you can write to her. Sonoma Creek gave the long boundary to the little farm. Two sides were worm-fenced, and the fourth side was wild water. We'll have that beautiful man and woman for neighbors, Saxon recollected. Wild water will be the dividing line between their place and ours. It ain't ours yet, Billy commented. Let's go and call on them. They'll be able to tell us all about it. It's just as good as, she replied. The big thing has been the finding and whoever owns it doesn't care much for it. It hasn't been lived in for a long time. And, oh, Billy, are you satisfied? With every bit of it, he answered frankly, as far as it goes. But the trouble is, it don't go far enough. The disappointment in her face spurned him to renunciation of his particular dream. We'll buy it, that's settled, he said. But outside the meadow, there's so much woods that there's little pasture. No more than enough for a couple of horses and a cow. But I don't care. We can't have everything. And what they is, is almighty good. Let's call it a starter, she consoled. Later on we can add to it. Maybe the land alongside that runs up the wild water to the three knolls we saw yesterday. Where I seen my horses pasturing, he remembered, with a flash of eye. Why not? So much has come true since we hit the road. Maybe that'll come true, too. We'll work for it, Billy. We'll work like hell for it, he said grimly. They passed through the rustic gate and along a path that wound through wild woods. There was no sign of a house until they came abruptly upon it, bowered among the trees. It was eight-sided and so justly proportioned that its two stories made no show of height. The house belonged there. It might have sprung from the soil, just as the trees had. 
There was no formal grounds. The wild grew to the doors. The low porch of the main entrance was raised only a step from the ground. Trillium Covert, they read, in quaint carved letters under the eave of the porch. Come right upstairs, you dears, a voice called from above in response to Saxon's knock. Stepping back and looking up, she beheld the little lady smiling down from a sleeping porch. Clad in a rosy tissued and flowing house gown, she again reminded Saxon of a flower. Just push the front door open and find your way, was the direction. Saxon led with Billy at her heels. They came into a room bright with windows, where a big log smoldered in a rough stone fireplace. On the stone slab above stood a huge Mexican jar, filled with autumn branches and trailing fluffy smoke vine. The walls were finished in warm, natural woods, stained but without polish. The air was aromatic with clean wood odors. A walnut organ loomed in a shallow corner of the room. All corners were shallow, in this octagonal dwelling. In another corner were many rows of books. Through the windows, across a low couch, indubitably made for use, could be seen a restful picture of autumn trees and yellow grasses, threaded by well-worn paths that ran here and there over the tiny estate. A delightful little stairway wound past more windows to the upper story. Here the little lady greeted them and led them into what Saxon knew at once was her room. The two octagonal sides of the house, which showed in this wide room, were given wholly to windows. Under the long sill, to the floor, were shelves of books. Books lay here and there, in the disorder of use, on work table, couch, and desk. On a sill by an open window, a jar of autumn leaves breathed the charm of the sweet brown wife, who seated herself in a tiny rattan chair, enameled as cherry red, such as children delight to rock in. A queer house, Mrs. Hale laughed girlishly and contentedly, but we love it. Edmund made it with his own hands, even to the plumbing, though he did have a terrible time with that before he succeeded. How about the hardwood floors downstairs in the fireplace? Billy inquired. All, all, she replied proudly, and half the furniture. That cedar desk there, the table, with his own hands. They are such gentle hands, Saxon was moved to say. Mrs. Hale looked at her quickly, her vivid face alive with a grateful light. They are gentle, the gentlest hands I've ever known, she said softly and you are a dear to have noticed it, for you only saw them yesterday in passing. I couldn't help it, Saxon said simply. Her gaze slipped past Mrs. Hale, attracted by the wall beyond, which was done in a bewitching honeycomb pattern dotted with golden bees. The walls were hung with a few, very few, framed pictures. They are all of people, Saxon said, remembering the beautiful paintings in Mark Hall's bungalow. My windows frame my landscape paintings, Mrs. Hale answered, pointing out of doors. Inside, I want only the faces of my dear ones, who I cannot have with me always. Some of them are dreadful rovers. Oh, Saxon was on her feet and looking at a photograph. 
You know Clara Hastings? I ought to. I did everything but nurse her at my breast. She came to me when she was a little baby. Her mother was my sister. Do you know how greatly you resemble her? I remarked it to Edmund yesterday. He had already seen it. It wasn't a bit strange that his heart leaped out to you, too, as you came drilling down behind those beautiful horses. So Mrs. Hale was Clara's aunt, old stock that had crossed the plains. Saxon knew now why she had reminded her so strongly of her own mother. The talk whipped quite away from Billy, who could only admire the detailed work of the cedar desk while he listened. Saxon told of meeting Clara and Jack Hastings on their yacht and on their driving trip in Oregon. They were off again, Mrs. Hale said, having shipped the horses home from Vancouver and taken the Canadian Pacific on their way to England. Mrs. Hale knew Saxon's mother, or rather her poems, and produced not only the story of the files, but a ponderous scrapbook which contained many of her mother's poems which Saxon had never seen. A sweet singer, Mrs. Hale said, but so many had sung in the days of gold and been forgotten. There had been no army of magazines then, and the poems had perished in local newspapers. Jack Hastings had fallen in love with Clara. Talk ran on, then, visiting at Trillium Covert. He had fallen in love with Sonoma Valley, and bought a magnificent home ranch, though little enough he saw of it, being away over the world so much of the time. Mrs. Hale talked of her own journey across the plains, a little girl in the late fifties, and like Mrs. Mortimer, knew all about the fight at Little Meadow, and the tale of the massacre of the immigrant train, of which Billy's father had been the sole survivor. And so, Saxon concluded an hour later, we've been three years searching for our Valley of the Moon, and now we have found it. Valley of the Moon? Mrs. Hale queried. Then you knew about it all the time. What kept you so long? No, we didn't know. We just started out on a blind search for it. Mark Hall called it a pilgrimage and was always teasing us to carry long staffs. He said when we found the spot, we'd know, because the staffs would burst into blossom. He laughed at all the good things we wanted in our valley, and one night he took me out and showed me the moon through a telescope. He said that was the only place we could find such a wonderful valley. He meant it was moonshine, but we adopted the name and went on looking for it. What a coincidence, Mrs. Hale exclaimed, for this is the Valley of the Moon. I know it, Saxon said with quiet confidence. It has everything we wanted. But you don't understand, my dear. This is the Valley of the Moon. This is Sonoma Valley. Sonoma is an Indian word and means Valley of the Moon. That's what the Indians called it for untold ages before the first white men came. We who love it still so call it. And then Saxon recalled the mysterious reference Jack Hastings and his wife had made to it, and the talk tripped along until Billy grew restless. He cleared his throat significantly and interrupted. We want to find out about that ranch across the creek, who owns it, if they'd sell, and where we'd find them, and such things. Mrs. Hale stood up. We'll go and see Edmund, she said, catching Saxon by the hand and leading the way. 
My, Billy ejaculated, towering above her. I used to think Saxon was small, but she'd make two of you. And you're pretty big, the little woman smiled. But Edmund is taller than you and broader-shouldered. They crossed the bright hall and found the big, beautiful husband lying back reading in a huge mission rocker. Beside it was another tiny child's chair of red-enameled rattan. Along the length of his thigh, the head on his knee, and directed toward a smoldering log in the fireplace, clung an incredibly large striped cat. Like its master, it turned its head to greet the newcomers. Again Saxon felt the loving benediction that abided in his face, his eyes, his hands, toward which she involuntarily dropped her eyes. Again she was impressed by the gentleness of them. They were hands of love. They were the hands of a type of man she had never dreamed existed. No one in that merry crowd of Carmel had prefigured him. They were artists. This was the scholar, the philosopher. In place of the passion of youth, and all youth's mad revolt, was the benignance of wisdom. Those gentle hands had passed all the bitter by, and plucked only the sweet of life. Dearly as she loved them, she shuddered to think what some of those Carmelites would be like when they were as old as he, especially the dramatic critic and the Iron Man. Here are the dear children, Edmund, Mrs. Hale said. What do you think? They want to buy the Madrano Ranch. They've been three years searching for it. I forgot to tell them. We had searched ten years for Trillium Covert. Tell them all about it, surely. Mr. Naismith is still of a mind to sell. They seated themselves in simple, massive chairs, and Mrs. Hale took the tiny rattan beside the big mission rocker. Her slender hand curled like a tendril in Edmund's, and while Saxon listened to the talk, her eyes took in the grave room lined with books. She began to realize how a mere structure of wood and stone may express the spirit of him who conceives and makes it. Those gentle hands had made all this, the very furniture, she guessed, as her eyes roved from desk to chair from work-table to reading-stand beside the bed in the other room, where stood a green-shaded lamp and orderly piles of magazines and books. As for the matter of Madrano Ranch, it was easy enough, he was saying, Naismith would sell. He had desired to sell for the past five years, ever since he had engaged in the enterprise of bottling mineral water at the springs lower down the valley. It was fortunate that he was the owner, for about all the rest of the surrounding land was owned by a Frenchman, an early settler, who would not part with a foot of it. He was a peasant, with all the peasant's love of the soil, which in him had become an obsession, a disease. He was a land miser, with no business capacity, old and opinionated. He was land poor, and it was an open question which would arrive first, his death or bankruptcy. As for Madrano Ranch, Naismith owned it and had set the price at $50 an acre. That would be $1,000, for there were 20 acres. As a farming investment, using old-fashioned methods, it was not worth it. As a business investment, yes, for the virtues of the valley were on the eve of being discovered 
by the outside world, and no better location for a summer home could be found. As a happiness investment, in joy of beauty and climate, it was worth a thousand times the price asked, and he knew Naismith would allow time on most of the amount. Edmund's suggestion was that they take a two-year's lease, with option to buy, the rent to apply to the purchase if they took it up. Naismith had done that once with a Swiss, who had paid a monthly rental of ten dollars. But the man's wife had died, and he had gone away. Edmund soon divined Billy's renunciation, though not the nature of it, and several questions brought it forth. The old pioneer dream of land spaciousness, of cattle on a hundred hills, one hundred and sixty acres of land, the smallest thinkable division. "'But you don't need all that land, dear lad,' Edmund said softly. "'I see you understand intensive farming. Have you thought about intensive horse-raising?' Billy's jaw dropped at the smashing newness of the idea. He considered it, but he could see no similarity in the two processes. Unbelief leaped into his eyes. "'You gotta show me,' he cried. The elder man smiled gently. Let us see. In the first place, you don't need those twenty acres except for beauty. There are five acres in the meadow. You don't need more than two of them to make your living at selling vegetables. In fact, you and your wife, working from daylight to dark, cannot properly farm those two acres. Remains three acres. You have plenty of water for it from the springs. Don't be satisfied with one crop a year like the rest of the old-fashioned farmers in this valley, farm it like your vegetable plot, intensively, all the year, in crops that make horse feed, irrigating, fertilizing, rotating your crops. Those three acres will feed as many horses as heaven knows how huge an area of unseeded, uncared-for, wasted pasture would feed. Think it over. I'll lend you books on the subject, I don't know how large your crops will be, nor do I know how much a horse eats. That's your business. But I am certain, with a hired man to take your place helping your wife on her two acres of vegetables, that by the time you own the horses, your three acres will feed, you will have all you can attend to. Then it will be time to get more land for more horses, for more riches, if that's the way happiness lie. Billy understood. In his enthusiasm, he dashed out, You're some farmer. Edmund smiled and glanced toward his wife. Give him your opinion of that, Annette. Her blue eyes twinkled as she complied. Why, the dear, he never farms. He has never farmed, but he knows. She waved her hand about the book-lined walls. He is a student of good. He studies all good things done by good men under the sun. His pleasure is in books and woodworking. Don't forget Dulcie, Edmund gently protested. Yes, and Dulcie, Annette laughed. Dulcie is our cow. It is a great question with Jack Hastings whether Edmund dotes more on Dulcie or Dulcie dotes more on Edmund. When he goes to San Francisco, Dulcie is miserable. So is Edmund, until he hastens back. Old Dulcie has given me no few jealous pangs. 
but I have to confess he understands her as no one else does. That is the one practical subject I know by experience, Edmund confirmed. I am an authority on Jersey cows. Call upon me any time for counsel. He stood up and went toward his bookshelves, and they saw how magnificently large a man he was. He paused a book in his hand to answer a question from Saxon. No, there were no mosquitoes, although one summer when the south wind blew for ten days, an unprecedented thing, a few mosquitoes had been carried up from San Pablo Bay. As for fog, it was the making of the valley. And where they were situated, sheltered behind Sonoma Mountain, the fogs were almost invariably high fogs, sweeping in from the ocean forty miles away. They were deflected by Sonoma Mountain and shunted high into the air. Another thing, Trillium Covert and Madrano Ranch were happily situated in a narrow thermal belt, so that in the frosty mornings of winter the temperature was always several degrees higher than in the rest of the valley. In fact, frost was very rare in the thermal belt, as was proved by the successful cultivation of certain orange and lemon trees. Edmund continued reading titles and selecting books until he had drawn out quite a number. He opened the top one, Bolton Hall's Three Acres and Liberty, and read to them of a man who walked 650 miles a year in cultivating, by old-fashioned methods, 20 acres, from which he harvested 3,000 bushels of poor potatoes, and of another man, a new farmer, who cultivated only five acres, walked 200 miles, and produced 3,000 bushels of potatoes, early and choice, which he sold at many times the price received by the first man. Saxon received the books from Edmund, and, as she heaped them in Billy's arms, read the titles. They were Wixen's California Fruits, Wixen's California Vegetables, Brooks Fertilizers, Watson's Farm Poultry, King's Irrigation and Drainage, Kropotkin's Fields, Factories, and Workshops, and Farmer's Bulletin Number 22, on the feeding of farm animals. Come for more any time you want them, Edmund invited. I have hundreds of volumes on farming and all the agricultural bulletins. And you must come and get acquainted with Dulcie your first spare time, he called after them, out the door. End of section 53